his love and his goodness has been a week into a discussion of uh, grace. It's a great theme for God throughout the scriptures. Uh, we're going to hear much more about his, his ethical attributes, such as his love and his mercy, than we are his his uh, power and might would be a far more prevalent thing. So that's why I agree with John Frame as we're using his uh, systematic theology here to be our launching point to discuss these matters. So we're discussing the love of God right now. We talk generally about his goodness, the goodness of God, and now we are on his love. We talked about the language of the love of God. Um, whereas goodness is is uh, is benevolence, about what he actually actually does, how he gives. Uh, love is the general standard of his context. It, 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 it's it's the motivation of his goodness. So it's a much narrower concept, and it's very theologically rich. Uh, God is. God is self-giving because God is love. Uh, When we read the great declarations of the scriptures that for God so loved the world that he gave, uh, that's talking about his driving force, that which drove him to send Christ, that which drove Christ to go, the one that loved us and washed us from our own sins in his blood. So we talked a lot about the language of Love last week we talked about this term agape and how what and how it's different uh, what difference it makes is the fact that it's that it was the understanding of the New Testament writers that this was um, this was the love of God described in the Old Testament and you get this this picture of uh, the New Testament being God of love and the Old Testament presenting a God of wrath or something to that effect, but but the word agape matches the Hebrew word ahava, and and it expands the concept of love that was found in the Old Testament. This merciful, this gracious, this this loving God that 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 uh, that chose His people and cared about His people and led His people because He loved them. And that term agape uh, kind of coalesces that grander idea. Then we talked about not only the language of love, it's language, it's agape, in the Old Testament, the Abba in the New Testament, uh, but also what, what extent. And this gets into, like I said, I, I am far more Calvinistic than I ever have been in my life. And if you want to one of my reasons for for uh, for believing in ideas such as limited atonement and stuff like that, I have them. Uh, but when we talk about the love and the extent of God's love, God loved all sinners. God loved the world and sent His Son for the world that whosoever might believe from out of the world. So this is 
a genuine, a genuine extent of God's love. I mean, is God loves the lost. And it's clear when we get into the scriptures, and, I, and we're, we're, we're afraid sometimes to admit what is plainly in the scriptures because we don't always know how to reconcile these ideas. But he is the Savior of the world, especially of them that believe. Christ, the extent of the love of God that was, was, that was declared and seen from the cross of Christ is infinite. If, if, if God had chosen to save a billion more people than he actually does, the cross would still be sufficient to save them. And, and there is genuine acts of love, overtures of love that is given to all that are in the world. Uh, so unbelievers themselves are subject of his kindness, subject of his, not just of his goodness, but that goodness is motivated by his love for them. As we saw, the goodness of God leads men to repentance, the love of God also does, uh, as, as the, uh, as, uh, is a genuine appeal that we can preach. And we grant that when we talk about love, the love of God in such a way, it sounds Arminian, and that's, that's fine. That doesn't mean we are Arminian in our beliefs, but it sounds like it, because, of the, because we can't, we do not go out and say, well, God, God does not love you to anyone. We cannot scripturally do that. We are not, we do not present God's love as hypothetical. God's love is true. And it's, and it's extended great. Uh, any more than it would be that the Arminian is wrong to say, well, the atonement of Christ is hypothetical only if you believe. Uh, that, that, that's, that, that, that's, that's just as wrong of a statement for us to turn around and say, well, the love of God towards the lost is uh, and while I, while I believe more and more in the ideas of limited atonement, and someday we're going to get to talk about why that is, there is a sense in which the extent of the love of God is towards all. And there is, there is no limit to that. And I think we beat that, uh, beat that to death last week. What is the extent of God's love? It extends to everyone. And we see that. God loves his people. God loves even the lost. And that's why they enjoy good things from God. Including the preaching of the gospel to them. Genuine preaching of the gospel to them. So now, let's talk about God's saving. It's a little bit more particular. So we're getting past the language itself uh, to talk about how it specifically applies. In various, in various ways, in lots of ways, Frank says here, God loves everyone. Whether elect or non-elect, God loves them. But this is most clearly seen, this love, in the act of 
saving sinners. This is his love most fully applied. Does he save sinners? And if we if we can admit to anything, this is a great theme of the scriptures. God in his love saves sinners. Jesus was sent to save sinners. Uh, and whosoever believed in him was not condemned. But whosoever believed not, not is condemned already because he has not believed. Uh, so God's special love for the people whom Jesus came to save is what we're talking about when we talk about him saving sinners. Redemption comes, and redemption is one of those grand themes of the scriptures. In fact, when it comes to what applies to us directly as scriptures and the recipient of scripture, redemption is that theme. And redemption comes from the love of God. Why does God hate love saves sinners? Because he loves. And we see that case with uh, Israel in the Old Testament. Turn, if you will, to Deuteronomy. Why did God choose Israel? Well, when we read Deuteronomy, when we get to chapter 9, and I want you to go to 7, I don't want to necessarily read this, read these other references. He didn't save them because they were more righteous in chapter 9. And he didn't save them because, because they were more numerous. But why did he save them? Deuteronomy 7, verse 7. The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any people, for you were the fewest of all people. But why did he love them? Because the Lord loved you, and because he would keep an oath which he had sworn to your fathers. Why did he choose them? Because he loved them. Why did he love them? Because he loved them. It's kind of a tautology, is it? He goes as, the fact that he loved them is the fact it is seen in the great love that he showed towards them. Why did he choose them? Why did he elect Israel? Why did he elect Abraham? Because he loved them. Why are you saved? You are you are saved. You know yourself. Why, why did he save you? Because he loved you. We all learned that in Sunday school, right? Jesus loved me, this I know, or the Bible tells me so. His, his love is the reason for your salvation. It's the reason for your election. For him choosing to have mercy upon you flow from his love. God loves sovereignly. There was no condition here with Israel. Well, if you're numerous, I'll love you. Or when we get to chapter 9, if you're righteous, I will love you. Right? There is no condition for him making Israel the object of his love, and so it is with us. There was no condition that we had. In fact, we ran so far away from every possible condition there was. I was the worst of the worst, chief among sinners, and he loved me. So, so his love is unconditional in saving sinners, in electing. Why did he love you? Because he loved you. 
He, he gives no other reason than his sovereign choice to do so. Why did he say it? Because he did. Because he did love him. So his love is, this is a sovereign love. And it tells us about his lordship. He is lord even over his love and his grace. Amen? He, he, he exercised his freedom to make you the object of his love. That gets back into the scary territory for the Armenians. Right? That I gotta meet some kind of condition in order to be a recipient of God's love. That's not so. God sovereignly loves. He's Lord over, over what object of love he pours grace upon. And we're going to talk great about grace more than that. First uh, John chapter 4, verse 19. We know that one, but sometimes we need to look at it in black and white. First John chapter 4. That's where I'm in my reading in my Greek is first John 4. So I'll get to this later on this afternoon in the Greek, and I'm excited about it. Something about something about reading uh, anything that John wrote, uh, he was just so plain in his use of the Greek that it's just right there where you can grab it. But first chapter John 4 19. Uh, we love him. Why? There was no there's a condition for our love. Our love is conditioned by his, but he first loved us. In the old so, so this is the same thing that was said in Deuteronomy 7. Why did, why did God choose Israel? Because he loved them. Why did God love Israel? Because he loved them. Why, did he, why does he love us? Why do we love him? His love preceded ours. God's sovereign love motivates our response and not the other way around. Nothing we did motivated God to respond in love to us. Right? Spoke so with Israel. You weren't numerous and you weren't righteous. Right? You, 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 there, there was no condition you were meeting. He unconditionally chose sovereignly to love you, and that becomes the motivation for your love to him. So that's the sovereignty of God's love. And we notice how this becomes ethical, the ethical mandate. Uh, Deuteronomy 7, uh, we turned away too soon. But Deuteronomy 7, now in verse 12. Wherefore it shall come to pass, if you hearken to my judgments and keep and do them, that the Lord thy God shall keep unto thee the covenant and the mercy which he swore unto your fathers. So God initiates his love, and in entering into that love relation, he, uh, the continuance is conditioned upon our condition. Continual experience therein, or our continual obedience therein, but not the initiation. He sovereignly chose to love, and in that love uh, continues to pour more love upon us based upon, upon our obedience, uh, but not the initiation of it. By the way, when it comes to the sanctification side, why did it, we can look at this, I suppose, in the terms of justification and sanctification. Um, all conditions in the sanctification side of our love, our continued experience, our growing in the knowledge and the experience of love of God based upon our continual obedience towards Him and love, um, all those conditions were met for us in Christ. Um, 
what's important here is to, is to see that his motivation to redeem us is based upon his sovereign acts of love. As New Testament typically defines love, Graham goes on, uh, both the love of God and the love required of believers in response to that love, uh, in reference to the cross of Jesus Christ. That's always going to be the apex of our understanding of his love and our, our, and our need ethically to respond in love to that love. Um, turn to Galatians 2.20. I know we say it and we know it, um, but let's look at it. Galatians 2.20. We see how the love of God becomes the standard by which we live. Ethically speaking. Um, Galatians 2.20. I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. His love becomes the motivation of our love and our living and our perceiving in life. Uh, God sending the Son to shows the very nature of his love and that which by which we should live in. Greater love has no man than this, and the man lay down his life for his friends. And you are my friends, he says, if you do what I have commanded you. Uh, God showed his love for us, and God demonstrated his love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's how he poured his love upon us. That is That becomes the standard by which we live. Uh, he has given us a love from which no one can separate us from read that last week, I think, our Romans chapter 8, I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus. Uh, let's look at First uh, John chapter 3. We see how the love of God becomes the moral standard uh, for Christian living. We looked at this quite a bit when we were going through just the teaching on the Lord's table. First uh, John three sixteen. Hereby perceive we the love of God because He laid down His life for us, and we ought. There's where our ethical standard is, is brought in here. We ought to. That's that's ethical language. We ought to lay down our lives for the brethren as He laid down His life for us. So. So his love is the standard by which we live. Um, uh, comparing other passages, he says here, Jesus' atonement is a model for our behavior towards one another. Let's look at a couple of these passages. Uh, Matthew chapter 20. And we can continue to see love of God as, as the standard of our ethics. Matthew 20. I'll get there for some reason I'm going the other way. Matthew chapter 20 and verse 25. But Jesus called them unto him and said, You know that the princes of the Gentiles exercise dominion over them, and they that are great exercise authority upon them, but it shall not be 
you, uh, let him be your minister. Whosoever will be the chief among you, let him be your servant. Why? Even as a son of man come not to be ministered to, but to minister and give his life a ransom. The atonement of Christ, the apex of the love of God shown to us, becomes the motivation, the standard by which we treat one another. I gave my life a ransom for you, so serve one another. Second um, Corinthians chapter five. Second Corinthians chapter five and verse. we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead, and that he died for all, that we which live should not henceforth live unto ourselves. Why are we coming to this conclusion that we die for all? That love of Christ constrains us in our behavior one towards another. Uh, Philippians 2, we're not, we're not going to take time to read this passage. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. And, and we have the Carmen Christi uh, there, uh, the, the early Christian hymn laid out before us about how he made himself of no reputation, took upon himself the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of men, was obedient unto death. And this ransom, this, this display of God's sovereign love towards us, unconditioned by any merit in us, that you and I are to have one towards another. Peter, let's look at this one just one little bit, not as familiar, but 1 Peter chapter 2. We see how this is framing the love of God as this ethical standard, uh, especially considering that love of God as it's displayed in the atonement of Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile bound in his mouth, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to the one that judges righteously, who his own self bear our sin and his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness by whose stripes we you were sheep going astray, but are now returned to the shepherd and bishop of your souls. You see, the standard of our conduct is found in the display of the love of Christ in, on the cross. So, so uh, this love becomes our standard by which we love, by which we behave, by which we go forward. And we are to imitate. We are to image it. We are to display the acts of Jesus Christ uh, in our behavior. Uh, and we would think, and Ray makes this point here, uh, we would think that this would be the thing that we are least able to imitate. But it's one upon which we are so often called to imitate in the New Testament. Like, I can't give my life a ransom for you. Right? Any more than you can give your life a ransom for me, you would think. You'd think, well, it's impossible for us to do as Christ has done. 
possible for you to give your life a ransom, but it's not possible for you to give your life. Amen? And that's what we should be doing all the time. Uh, whether that's a whether that's a command of the husband in marriage, husbands love, love your wives, even as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. And the standard there, we saw right there in First John chapter 3.16, how it became the standard of our fellowship. He gave himself, we ought to give ourselves. And there's so little of that among Christian teaching today about how the love of God is practically applied in the way we ethically prosecute our lives. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot about me and a lot about uh, me getting what I want out of Christian fellowship. Uh, Draining others of all their resources and everything else like that, but there's so little of us living out the cross of Jesus Christ, this grand display of his love. Uh, it's this, the cross of Jesus Christ is the profound representation of the very nature of God before us. Uh, and that's why it's always, it's always presented to us as this grand display of love. I feel sorry for my devoted witnesses and Unitarian friends who can look at the cross of Christ and see nothing but the love of God there. They can't. It's impossible for them to see the love of God. Our Muslim friends, that's why they deny the cross altogether. They can't see the love of God displayed there. And you and I, this is the representation of the nature of God. And it's how we should now live based upon the fact that it is God is love. He's shown that. He's just demonstrated. He's demonstrated his love for us. And that while we're yet sinners, he died for us. Uh, he's shown his love to the greatest extent. God's character, says John Graham here, it's such has been shown in such profundity, it cannot help but be the standard by which we live our own lives. God's Satan love. Didn't begin at the cross, though. When did he start? When did he start loving the sinner? When? Well, before the foundation of the world, he had already set his love upon the sinner. We looked at that quite a few times there in Ephesians one. His God-saving love motivates even the eternal election of his people. Behold, what did God? It reaches to us in time, and Thomas actually explained the lesson to us in our church. But it reaches to us in time, and it becomes, it brings us into his family. First uh, John chapter three verse one says this: "Behold, what manner of love, or what kind of love, or." nature of this love. Behold the nature, the type, the kind of love that God has given to us that we should be called the children of God. It's, it, it's not just a love that's born in eternity that's, that's sovereignly given that is a standard, but it's a love that you and I 
trust of a real and true relationship with him. Paul, in Ephesians 3, prayed there for the Ephesians that they would be rooted and grounded in this love, that they may be able to comprehend with all saints what is the breadth, the length, <laughs> I can't think of it, <laughs> you know, I guess more dimensions the breadth, the length, the depth, the height, uh,
pursued, his love pursued Saul. And his love pursued you and me. He seeks sinners. Does God, does God's love violate anything in this world in regards to our free will? And this, this is, I always have a hard time trying to, trying to parse out some of these things out. For instance, I, like I already said, I would never say that God, that, that you're not supposed to choose God, that you're not called upon to believe upon Christ, and that, that is not a moral responsibility for you to, to do so. God does not make us believe good things. And we do resist good grace. Just every sinner out here and every, everything that you've done before you were saved was resisting good grace. So, what God did in his conversion overwhelmed me with his love. Overwhelmed Paul with his love. So, I don't know if conversion is the best best word to describe, but God is in control, uh, and God does make choices in His love. I, I'm not making I'm, I'm fumbling all over here because I don't know exactly exactly how to get this. But let's look at let's look at the terms of the covenant here. He creates in us a new heart. What does the words of the covenant of Jeremiah say? It says, I will take your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. Feeling. I will, I, I, I will uh, put my law into your heart. All, this is language of grace that is given to us. There is a change that happened to us in our conversion, whereby we were his enemies, and now because of his love, we are reconciled. So that so so we, we gotta start. I don't think we need these categories whereby we're trying to figure out how things fit in this, but we cannot not embrace the language of grace when we're talking about what actually happened in in saving sinners. He created in me a new heart. He he, he gave me new affection. Whereby before I was his enemy, now I am his child. Uh, that, that this is all great works of God's love. And God was authoritative and sovereign. And I only love him because he first loved me. So that's the love of God. It demonstrates his I'm grateful that uh, I'm grateful above all things that I didn't have to meet a condition for it to be a recipient of it. And just like it was with Israel, I didn't have to be numerous. I didn't have to be righteous. I didn't have to be good in order for him to decide to put his love in me. 
you know, in the extent of Islam, extends further out even to those that will never be saved or experience Rejecting love. But when I think of me particularly, when you think of you particularly, in your salvation experience, you were because he sought you, because he chose in a greater way, in, in, in some, by his grace alone, to open, to convict you, and to draw you, and to do all these things, you sit now as a child of God. You didn't just one day, well, I think, I, I think I'm going to start loving God as a child. I didn't know what to do. That was his overture to you. Hope I didn't muddy the waters and stutter enough to where you didn't get anything from this. Uh, so next week we're going to start talking more from goodness, from love, and next week we're going to talk about grace, uh, and that's going to get us into deeper waters here. But uh, in the next week or two, so not next week because we're not really going to have a Sunday school. But uh, but when we next year, then we will start talking about God's grace, and then. We're going to get into his righteousness and his holiness and some of these some of these great attributes of God. Any questions, complaints, or grievances? I always want to give you a chance to grieve here if you want to grieve. Yeah, Nick. Jimmy, I knew you had something to say. Move away from Juanita if you're going to go there. <laughs>
attention to man's quest to find God, but in that moment, when they seen it was God looking for them. Yeah, God was looking for them, not man looking for them. And that's, I was just reading something that Philip has like humanities school that he had to buy for a college class that he's taking it. And the very first article in it was all about that idea that we Stop there. We got about.